Section 9 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Dennison, Portland, Maine. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1. Section N. The Beginning of the Unraveling of the Cover-Up. The cover-up began publicly to unravel when McCord broke his silence on March 21, 1972, with his letter to Judge Sirica, which was read in open court on March 23. It was soon learned that McCord had accused Magruder of perjury, and Mitchell, Magruder, and Dean of participating in planning the Watergate break-in. Even before McCord broke his silence, Magruder and Dean were concerned about the viability of the cover-up. Magruder, according to his testimony, expressed his concerns to Haldeman as early as January 1973, and to Mitchell and Dean in March. Dean voiced his fears to the President on several occasions. Subsection 1. The February 28 Meeting According to Dean, he met with the President on February 28, 1973, and, after discussion of a number of matters, informed him that he, Dean, was involved in the post-June 17 activities regarding Watergate. I briefly described to him why I thought I had legal problems, and that I had been a conduit for many of the decisions that were made, and therefore could be involved in an obstruction of justice. Dean said the President did not accept his analysis, wanted no details, and told him not to worry, because he had no legal problems. The edited presidential transcript of this meeting does not, in significant respects, bear out Dean's recollection of this meeting. However, in Dean's meeting with the President on March 21, he did tell the President that he could go to prison for obstruction of justice since he was acting as a conduit in the payments of money to the defendants. The President discounted this possibility, as Dean has testified, on the ground that Dean was acting as a lawyer. This conversation is quite similar to the one Dean testified took place on February 28th, and it thus appears from these unauthenticated transcripts that Dean placed this discussion with the President on the wrong date when he testified before the Select Committee. Nonetheless, there are certain statements during the February 28th meeting that can be construed as referencing the cover-up, then in progress. President, I feel for those poor guys in jail, particularly for Hunt and with his wife dead. Well, there is every indication they are hanging in tough right now. President. What the hell do they expect, though? Do they expect clemency in a reasonable time? What would you advise on that? Dean. I think it is one of those things we will have to watch very closely. For example, President. You couldn't do it, say, in six months. Dean. No, you couldn't. This thing may become so political as a result of these hearings that it is a vendetta. This judge may go off the deep end in sentencing and make it so absurd that it's clearly injustice that they have been heavily. Dean. Well, I was. We have come a long road on this thing now. I had thought it was an impossible task to hold together until after the election, until things started falling out. But we have made it this far. And I'm convinced we are going to make it the whole road and put this thing in the funny pages of history books rather than anything serious, because actually... President, it will be somewhat serious, 
But the main thing, of course, is also the isolation of the president. Dean, absolutely, totally true. President, because that fortunately is totally true. Dean, I know that, sir. President, expletive deleted. Of course, I am not dumb, and I will never forget when I heard about this. Adjective deleted. Forced entry and bugging. I thought, what in the hell is this? What is the matter with these people? Are they crazy? I thought they were nuts. A prank. But it wasn't. It wasn't very funny. I think that our Democratic friends know that too. They know what the hell it was. They don't think we'd be involved in such. President. But I think it is very important that you have these talks with our good friend Kleindienst. Dean. That will be done. President. Tell him we have to get these things worked out. We have to work together on this thing. I would build him up. He is the man who can make the difference. Also point out to him what we have. Expletive deleted. Colson's got characterization deleted. But I really, really, the stuff here, let's forget this. But let's remember, this was not done by the White House. This was done by the Committee to Re-elect, and Mitchell was the chairman, correct? Dean, that's correct. President, and Kleindienst owes Mitchell everything. Mitchell wanted him for attorney general, wanted him for deputy, and here he is. Now, expletive deleted, Baker's got to realize this, and that if he allows this thing to get out of hand, he is going to potentially ruin John Mitchell. He won't. Mitchell won't allow himself to be ruined. He'll put on his big stone face. But I hope he does, and he will. There is no question what they are after. What the committee is after is somebody at the White House. They would like to get Haldeman, or Colson, or Ehrlichman. Dean. Or possibly Dean. You know, I'm a small fish. President. Anybody at the White House, they would. But in your case, I think they realize you are the lawyer, and they know you didn't have an adjective-deleted thing to do with the campaign. Dean. That's right. President. That's what I think. Well, we'll see you. Subsection 2. The March 13 Meeting Dean's testimony was that the money demands by Hunt and how to meet them and the promise of clemency to Hunt were discussed with the President and Haldeman at this meeting. This testimony is not supported by the edited presidential transcripts of this meeting. It appears from that document and Haldeman's testimony that Dean confused his morning meeting with the President on March 21, where Hunt's money demands and clemency were discussed with the events of March 13. Nevertheless, the March 13 transcript is significant because it shows that, on that date, Dean revealed at least some of the aspects of the cover-up to the President. Some illustrative passages from the edited presidential conversations follow. President. Who's going to be the first witness up there? Dean. Sloan. President. Unfortunate. Dean. No doubt about it. President. He's scared? Dean. He's scared. He's weak. He has a compulsion to cleanse his soul by confession. We are giving him a lot of stroking. Funny thing is, this fellow goes down to the courthouse here before Sirica, testifies as honestly as he can testify, and Sirica looks around and called him a liar. He just said, Sloan just can't win. So Kalmbach has been dealing with Sloan. Sloan is like a child. Kalmbach has done a lot of that. 
The person who will have a greater problem as a result of Sloan's testimony is Kalmbach and Stans. So they are working closely with him to make sure that he settles down. Dean. Kalmbach is solid? President. He will. How does he tell his story? He has a pretty hard row to hoe. He and Stans have? Dean. He will be good. Herb is the kind of guy who will check not once or twice on his story, not three times, but probably 50 to 100 times. He will go over it. He will know it. There won't be a hole in it. Probably he'll do his own Q&A. He will have people cross-examine him from 10 ways. He will be ready, as Maury Stans will be ready. President. Mitchell is now studying, is he? Dean. He is studying. Sloan will be the worst witness, I think. Magruder will be a good witness. This fellow, Bart Porter, will be a good witness. They have already been through grand jury. They have been through a trial. They did well. Dean. Chapin didn't know anything about the Watergate. President. Don't you think so? Dean. Absolutely not. President. Strachan? Dean. Yes. President. He knew. Dean. Yes. President. About the Watergate. Dean. Yes. President. Well, then he probably told Bob. He may not have. Dean. He was judicious in what he relayed. But Strachan is as tough as nails. He can go in and stonewall and say, I don't know anything about what you are talking about. He has already done it twice, you know, in interviews. President. I guess he should, shouldn't he? I suppose we can't call that justice, can we? Dean. Well, it is a personal loyalty to him. He doesn't want it any other way. He didn't have to be told. He didn't have to be asked. It just is something that he found was the way he wanted to handle the situation. President. But he knew. He knew about Watergate. Strachan did? Dean. Yes. President. I will be damned. Well, that is the problem in Bob's case. Not Chapin, then, but Strachan. Strachan worked for him, didn't he? Dean. Yes. They would have one hell of a time proving that Strachan had knowledge of it, though. President. Who knew better, Magruder? Dean. Magruder and Liddy. President. Oh, I see. The other weak link for Bob is Magruder. He hired him, etc. Dean. That applies to Mitchell, too. President. Is it too late to go to the hangout road? Dean. Yes, I think it is. The hangout road. President. The hangout road. Inaudible. Dean. It was kicked around Bob and I and... President. Ehrlichman always felt it should be hangout. Dean. Well, I think I convinced him why he would not want to hang out either. There is a certain domino situation here. If some things start going, a lot of other things are going to start going, and there can be a lot of problems if everything starts falling. So, there are dangers, Mr. President. I would be less than candid if I did not tell you there are. There is a reason for not everyone going up and testifying. President. I see. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean to have everyone go up and testify. Dean. Well, I mean, they're just starting to hang out and say, here's our story. President. I mean, put the story out, PR people. Here is the story, the true story about Watergate. Dean. They would never believe it. Subsection 3. The March 21 Meeting. On March 21, 
Two days before McCord's letter to Judge Sirica became public, Dean met with the President to give him a report of his knowledge of the Watergate facts and to explain the implications of those facts. Dean's testimony before the Select Committee was as follows. He told the President that, quote, there was a cancer growing on the presidency and that if the cancer was not removed, the President himself would be killed by it, unquote. He told the President that the cancer must be excised immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. He then gave the President a broad overview of the Watergate affair, including a description of the meetings in January and February 1972 in Mitchell's office. He told the President he did not know how the plan was approved, but that he was informed that Mitchell and Haldeman, the latter through Strachan, had received illegal wiretap information. Dean informed the President of the highlights of the cover-up, including the use of Kalmbach by Ehrlichman, Haldeman, and Mitchell to raise hush money to pay the Watergate defendants. He spoke of Magruder's false story before the grand jury and of his role in assisting Magruder to commit perjury. He told the President that for the cover-up to continue, it would require even more perjury and more money. Certain portions of the edited presidential transcript for this meeting relating to hush money and clemency have been previously presented in this report. The following quotations provide further indication of the tenor of the conversation at that meeting. President. Magruder is unintelligible. Dean. Yeah, Magruder is totally knowledgeable on the whole thing. President. Yeah. Dean. All right now. We have gone through the trial. I don't know if Mitchell has perjured himself in the grand jury or not. President. Who? Dean. Mitchell. I don't know how much knowledge he actually had. I know that Magruder has perjured himself in the grand jury. I know that Porter has perjured himself in the grand jury. President. Who is Porter? Unintelligible. Dean. He is one of Magruder's deputies. They set up this scenario, which they ran by me. They said, how about this? I said, I don't know. If this is what you're going to hang on, fine. Dean. Now, what has happened post-June 17? I was under pretty clear instructions not to investigate this, but this could have been disastrous on the electorate if all hell had broken loose. I worked on a theory of containment. President. Sure. Dean. To try to hold it right where it was. President. Right. Dean. Liddy said if they all got counsel instantly and said we will ride this thing out, all right, then they started making demands. We have to have attorney's fees. We don't have any money ourselves, and you are asking us to take this through the election? All right, so arrangements were made through Mitchell initiating it, and I was present in discussions where these guys had to be taken care of. Their attorney fees had to be done. Kalmbach was brought in. Kalmbach raised some cash. President, they put that under the cover of a Cuban committee, I suppose. Dean, well, they had a Cuban committee, and they had, some of it was given to Hunt's lawyer, who in turn passed it out. You know, when Hunt's wife was flying to Chicago with $10,000, she was actually, I understand after the fact now, was going to pass that money to one of the Cubans, to meet him in Chicago and pass it to somebody there. President, unintelligible. But I would certainly keep that cover for whatever it is worth. Dean. That's the most troublesome post thing because, one, Bob is involved in that. 
2. John is involved in that. 3. I am involved in that. 4. Mitchell is involved in that. And that is an obstruction of justice. Dean told the committee that he informed the President on March 21 that he did not believe that all of the seven defendants would maintain their silence forever and that one or more would likely break rank. The transcripts reveal an extended discussion about various individuals capable of, quote, blowing, unquote, and about others who were, quote, solid, unquote. The edited transcripts indicate that Dean told the President, quote, I know, sir, I can just tell from our conversation that these are things you have no knowledge of, unquote. The President replied, quote, you certainly can, unquote. These last remarks are consistent with Richard Moore's testimony that Dean had said to him that the President was not aware of White House cover-up activity. According to the edited transcripts, the President shortly thereafter told Dean, President, let's come back to this problem. What are your feelings yourself, John? You know what they are all saying. What are your feelings about the chances? Dean, I am not confident that we can ride through this. I think there are soft spots. President, you used to be. Dean said that in this meeting, he told the president that because he did not think they could carry the cover-up any further, it was important for the president to get out in front of revealing the true facts. The edited transcript released by the president reveals the following exchange. President, so what you really come to is what we do. Let's suppose that you and Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Mitchell say, we can't hold this. What then are you going to say? What are you going to put out after it? Complete disclosure, isn't that the best way to do it? Dean, one way to do it is for you to tell the Attorney General that you finally know. Really, this is the first time you are getting all the pieces together. But this recommendation was not followed. Dean testified that, despite his full disclosures to the President, a meeting with the President, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell the following day, March 22, focused entirely on the White House's relationship with the Select Committee, particularly in regard to the assertion of executive privilege. The edited transcript of that meeting shows that this was the principal subject of discussion. Dean testified that he then became convinced that there would be no effort to stop the cover-up. Subsection 4, The Camp David Trip Dean testified that on March 23, 1973, after McCord's letter was read in open court, the President called Dean and, referring to McCord's letter, said, quote, Well, John, you were right in your prediction, unquote. The President suggested that he go to Camp David to analyze the situation. According to Dean, when he arrived at Camp David, he received a telephone call from Haldeman, who instructed him to write a report on everything he knew about Watergate. While Dean indicated this was his first instruction to put his knowledge in writing, the edited transcript of the March 21st afternoon meeting indicates that the President, at that meeting, asked Dean to write a report on Watergate. Dean said he spent that day and the next thinking about the entire matter and concluded that the true facts must be publicly revealed because the situation would not improve, only worsen. He said he had several telephone conversations with Richard Moore, trying out ideas as to how the president could make the whole truth public. He said Moore seemed receptive, but suggested he get Haldeman's reaction. 
Dean spoke to Haldeman and concluded he was, quote, intrigued but not overwhelmed, unquote, by the idea of public revelation. Dean said, quote, it was becoming increasingly clear that no one involved was willing to stand up and account for themselves, unquote. Dean, at Camp David, did write a report but decided not to give it to Haldeman or the president when he returned. Subsection 5. Dean's Initial Contacts with Prosecutors and the Select Committee On March 28, Haldeman asked Dean to return to Washington to meet with Mitchell and Magruder. Although Dean did not wish to do so, Haldeman insisted. Dean testified he had the distinct impression that Haldeman was, quote, backpedaling fast, unquote, that he was in the process of uninvolving himself even if it meant sacrificing others. The March 28 meeting between Dean, Mitchell, and Magruder has been discussed earlier in this report. Magruder was concerned that everyone stick to the cover-up story Magruder had given the grand jury as to the entries in Magruder's diary for the meetings in Mitchell's office on January 27 and February 4, 1972. Dean testified he refused to perpetuate this false story. On March 30, Dean retained an attorney, and on April 2, he and his attorney met with the U.S. attorneys. Dean told them he was willing to come forward with everything he knew about the Watergate affair. Shortly afterward, Dean began providing information to the select committee under a special arrangement approved by the committee, whereby he would speak only with the chief counsel to allow him to evaluate the information Dean could provide to determine whether the committee should offer Dean, quote, use, unquote, Immunity. Subsection 6. The Ehrlichman Investigation. As indicated above, when Dean returned from Camp David, he did not submit a written report on Watergate to the President or Haldeman. Because of this, Haldeman said, the President, on March 30, ceased dealing with Dean on Watergate and transferred the White House Watergate investigation to Ehrlichman. It appears, however, from the edited presidential transcripts that this account of the genesis of the Ehrlichman, quote, investigation, unquote, was developed during an April 16, 1973 meeting among the president, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman. According to the transcript, the president asked Haldeman and Ehrlichman how the, quote, scenario worked out, unquote. Ehrlichman and Haldeman advised the president that the White House's position should be that the Watergate investigation was taken from Dean and given to Ehrlichman because Dean failed to write a report. According to this, quote, scenario, unquote, it was Ehrlichman's report to the president that led the president to contact Kleindienst and Peterson on April 15 to inform them of his knowledge of the Watergate facts. Ehrlichman, however, told the committee he did not conduct a thorough investigation of the Watergate matter, but only interviewed several White House and CRP officials, including Mitchell, O'Brien, and Magruder. He testified he gave an oral report to the president on April 14, 1973, that was based on these few interviews. Ehrlichman testified that after his report, the president directed him to, quote, advise the attorney general, unquote of his findings. Ehrlichman telephoned Kleindienst at 5.15 p.m. on April 14 and related to him the contents of his report to the president. 
As will subsequently appear, the prosecution already possessed much of the evidence Ehrlichman offered. Subsection 7. The Attempt to Have Mitchell Take the Blame Dean testified that his first meeting to give information to the federal prosecutors was scheduled for April 8. He said he felt obliged to tell Haldeman of his intentions and thus telephoned him that morning at San Clemente. Haldeman advised Dean against this course, saying, quote, Once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's going to be very hard to get it back in, unquote. Dean ignored Haldeman's advice and met with the prosecutors that afternoon. Moreover, Magruder, in early April, began talking with the prosecutors. His first substantive conversation with them was on April 14. Dean, according to his testimony, then began avoiding Haldeman and Ehrlichman. He did, however, have several conversations with them between April 9 and April 14, 1973. Certain of these discussions, according to Dean, involved a strategy to persuade Mitchell to, quote, step forward, unquote, and take the blame. Dean's testimony that this strategy existed is corroborated by the edited transcript of the April 14 meeting among the President, Ehrlichman, and Haldeman. This transcript basically portrays a discussion as to how to persuade Mitchell and Magruder, whom they evidently believed involved, to assume responsibility for the Watergate affair and proclaim that the White House was in no way involved. Various methods of persuasion were discussed. One was to suggest to both Mitchell and Magruder, without being specific, that clemency would be possible. The president instructed Ehrlichman to tell Mitchell and Magruder that, quote, the president holds great affection for you and your family, unquote. He added, quote, that's the way the so-called clemencies got to be handled, unquote. The April 14 conversation also indicates discussion regarding the dismissal of Dean, who was then talking to the federal prosecutors. From the conversation, it appears that the strategy to sacrifice Mitchell was motivated by the information Ehrlichman had received that Hunt was going to testify before the grand jury. Ehrlichman reported that Colson was very concerned about Hunt's possible testimony because, quote, once Hunt goes on, that's the ballgame, unquote. The president summarized Colson's advice to the White House as, quote, get busy and nail Mitchell in a hurry, unquote. The president, Ehrlichman, and Haldeman decided to appeal to Mitchell's loyalty and enlist his aid in limiting the unraveling of the cover-up. The president instructed Ehrlichman and Haldeman to approach Mitchell by saying, quote, there's nobody that can really do it except you, unquote. The president wanted Mitchell to testify that, quote, nobody in the White House is involved, etc., and so on, unquote. Subsection 8. The President's April 15 meeting with Kleindienst and Peterson. Meanwhile, U.S. Attorney Titus and Assistant U.S. Attorneys Earl Silbert, Donald Campbell, and Seymour Glanzer were outlining for Henry Peterson their discoveries in the case, which were largely based on information they were obtaining from Magruder and Dean. According to Peterson, he subsequently arranged for Kleindienst to meet with these prosecutors on the evening of April 14. An all-night session ensued, and the next day, a Sunday, Peterson and Kleindienst briefed the president on the evidence they had received, which indicated a massive cover-up, 
both Peterson and Kleindienst said, the President expressed no sign to them that Dean or anyone else had already imparted such information. Peterson testified he urged the President to dismiss Haldeman and Ehrlichman because of their apparent involvement in the cover-up, but not Dean, since Dean was cooperating with the prosecutors in its unraveling. Subsection 9. Further Meetings Between the President and Dean On the evening of April 15, 1973, Dean said he met with the President to inform him of his discussions with the prosecutors. He testified he told the President his conduct was not, quote, an act of disloyalty, unquote, but an action he believed necessary because, quote, I felt this matter had to end, unquote. The President asked whether he had received immunity and he advised that no deal had been made. Dean stated the President instructed him not to discuss national security matters or presidential conversations with the prosecutors. He said the President then attempted to clarify his earlier March 21 comment that it would be no problem to raise $1 million in hush money. Dean said the President told him he had only been joking when he made that remark. Contrary to Peterson's advice, the President decided that Dean should leave the White House, but that Haldeman and Ehrlichman should stay. Dean testified that on April 16, the President called him into the Oval Office and gave him two letters prepared for his signature. Quote, one letter requested the acceptance of Dean's resignation. The other letter requested an indefinite leave of absence, unquote. Both letters cited, quote, my involvement in the Watergate matter, unquote, as cause for departure. Dean testified he refused to sign either letter. The president then, Dean said, requested Dean to prepare his own letter of resignation, which Dean agreed to do. However, late in the day, Dean said, he informed the president that he would not resign unless Ehrlichman and Haldeman followed suit. The edited transcripts of these meetings confirmed Dean's testimony in large part. At the first meeting, the president told Dean he would have to say something about Dean's resignation, quote, or otherwise they will say, what the hell? After Dean told you all of this, what did you do? You see, unquote. The following colloquy then took place. President, but what is your feeling on that? See what I mean? Dean, well... I think it ought to be Dean, Ehrlichman, and Haldeman. President, well, I thought Dean at the moment. Dean, all right. President, and what I would think we would want to do is to have it in two different forms here. It seems to me that your form should be to request an immediate leave of absence. That would be one thing. The other, of course, would be a straight resignation. Dean, uh-huh. President, first, what I would suggest is that you sign both. Dean, what I would like to do is draft up for you an alternative letter, putting in both options and you can just put them in the file, short and sweet. President, all right, fine. I had dictated something myself, all my own. If you can give me a better form, fine. I just want to do it either way. Do you? Or do you want to prepare something? Dean, I would like to prepare something. Later that day, Dean returned with his draft. Dean, I wrote, quote, Dear Mr. President, 
inasmuch as you have informed me that John Ehrlichman and Bob Haldeman have verbally tendered their requests for immediate and indefinite leave of absence from the staff, I declare I wish also to confirm my similar request as having accepted a leave of absence from the staff. Unquote. Well, I think there is a problem. President. You don't want to go if they stay. Dean. There is the problem for you of the scapegoat theory. President. You mean making use of it. Dean. That's right. Subsection 10. The question of immunity for Dean. In the evening of April 17, 1973, President Nixon told the nation, I have expressed to the appropriate authorities my view that no individual holding in the past or at present a position of major importance in the administration should be given immunity from prosecution. Dean testified that when the president issued his statement on April 17, in which he was quite obviously trying to affect any discussions I was having with the government regarding my testimony by inserting the phrase therein regarding, quote, no immunity, unquote, and combined with the fact that he had requested that I sign a virtual confession on Monday of that week, I decided that indeed I was being set up. The edited presidential transcripts provide some support for Dean's intimation that the president did not want him to receive immunity because of concern over his testimony. On the afternoon of April 17, the president expressed his concern over the threat Dean posed. President, I'm not ruling out kicking him, Dean, out, but you got to figure what the hell does Dean know? What kind of blackmail does he have? Later that afternoon, the president, observing that, quote, Dean is the only one who can sink Haldeman or Ehrlichman, unquote, informed Haldeman and Ehrlichman he had told Assistant Attorney General Peterson, quote, specifically that nobody should be granted immunity in any case, unquote. He told them, quote, I want you to go forward at all costs to beat the damn rap. They'll have one hell of a time proving it, unquote. On April 18, Peterson testified, the president called him to inquire whether Dean had been immunized. After checking with Dean's lawyer and Mr. Silbert, Peterson assured the president that Dean had not received immunity. The president told Peterson he had a tape of an April 15 conversation with Dean in which Dean said he had been immunized. The president offered to let Peterson hear the tape, but Peterson refused. On April 19, the president met with Haldeman's and Ehrlichman's lawyers, John J. Wilson and Frank Strickler. The following passage from the edited transcript of this conversation is significant. President, then you got to remember Dean, as I have said, is a loose cannon. Wilson, I know he is. President, the damnedest charges you've ever heard. Some of them are unbelievable. Wilson, yes. President, this fellow that was sitting in here and who in the office of the president, a very bright young guy, but he now wants to drag them down with him. Wilson. Yes, oh, he's bad. President. They must have told him what I, they, I think, have told Dean, that if he'll, if he can get Haldeman and Ehrlichman, he gets immunity. Now, on that point, do you want Peterson to give him immunity or not? Wilson. Uh, President. Dean. Wilson, well, President, should he? Wilson, uh, let me, as I understood, they were hung up on that right now.
President, they are. Wilson, now. President, see, that's why I put out a statement that no major figure should be given immunity. Wilson, let me tell you, President, basically because I think it would look bad if unintelligible from our standpoint. The edited transcripts also demonstrate that Secretary of State Rogers agreed with the President that it would look bad to give Dean immunity. On April 19, two days after the President's no immunity statement, Dean issued a public statement that he would not be made a, quote, scapegoat, unquote, in the Watergate affair. On the same day Dean made this statement, White House aide Stephen Bull was asked to investigate Dean's awareness of the White House taping system. In his testimony during the Watergate tapes hearings before Judge Sirica, Bull was unable to recall who instructed him to make this check. He ascertained from a White House Secret Service official that Dean did not know about the system. As former presidential assistant Alexander Butterfield testified, very few individuals were cognizant of the secret taping system. On Easter Sunday, April 22, according to Dean, the president telephoned to wish him Happy Easter. Dean characterized this as a, quote, stroking, unquote, call. Subsection 11. The President's April 30 Statement On April 30, 1973, President Nixon addressed the American public on Watergate, declaring he accepted full, quote, responsibility, unquote, for the abuses that had transpired. The President announced the resignations of Haldeman and Ehrlichman, quote, two of my closest associates in the White House, unquote, and, quote, two of the finest public servants it has been my privilege to know, unquote. He also revealed the resignations of Kleindienst and Dean and his selection of Elliot Richardson as Kleindienst's replacement. The president stated that Dean's resignation had been requested. The president also claimed in this address that he had begun an intensive unquote, new investigation into the Watergate matter on March 21. The background of this statement is found in the edited presidential transcript of a meeting on April 17. President, the next part is what I'm concerned about. I began new inquiries, shall we say. Ehrlichman, well, I don't know. President, I began new inquiries into this matter as a result of serious charges, which were reported publicly and privately. Should we say that? Ehrlichman, publicly, comma which in some cases were reported publicly. President, four weeks ago we, why don't we say shall we set a date? That sounds a hell of a lot stronger if we set a date. Ehrlichman, all right. President, on March 21 I began new inquiries. Strike that. I ordered an investigation. New inquiries throughout the government. On May 17, the committee opened its public hearings into the Watergate burglary and its aftermath. By August 7, 1973, when the first phase of hearings ended, the Gemstone plan, the break-in, the details of the cover-up, and much more had been revealed. End of Section 9